Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And we're going to get straight to it. And our first question gets, comes from Basir Ahmed Khan Sahib from Germany. Assalamu alaikum, Basir Saab. He's uh, enjoying Faith Matters. Thank you, Basir, for your very kind uh, comments. But his question's about something that Zaid Sabai certainly <coughs> we've had happens between you and Jangir Saab at times, that you read each other's minds and thoughts. And his question's around that. And he's saying, is there a way whereby people convey their thoughts, are able to speak to each other, communicate with each other, without actually physically talking, picking up the phone, or indeed in this modern age, emailing or indeed texting. Is there such a thing? Yes, there are so many modes of communication, as you have alluded to. And the, the mind, the brain, is an organ which one has to marvel at the creation of Allah the Almighty in, in this respect as well. It is uh, such, such an organ with very complex capabilities. And as yet, many of those are uncharted because science has not unraveled the mysteries of the, of the brain as such. And uh, the mind goes back to other instances of how paranormal activity connected with the brain has uh, actually unraveled some of the mysteries that uh, puzzled man for a long time. So this is the concept and the beauty of the brain and the capabilities of the brain that there is great depth in it. Sometimes things are in it consciously, sometimes things are hidden by Allah in it subconsciously. And one. One aspect that comes to my mind is a chemistry lesson when I was in school and the benzene molecule, the mystery of the benzene molecule was actually solved by someone, uh, a chemist, Kekule his name was, who had a dream, who saw a snake with its uh, tail in its head and he had been, you know, pondering over this mystery of the benzene atom as a molecule as, as to how the carbon atoms were linked to it. And it was only when he was asleep and he had this dream and he saw this that it twigged to him that this was the answer to his dream. Now that was in his mind subconsciously. So that is the power of the brain that having taken all that information, he could not fathom it out while he was awake. Mm -hmm. But when he had gone to sleep, the brain continues to work. And that is how that mystery, particular mystery was reveled. Now communication without any verbal sort of stimuli is also something that is proven to, yes, definitely take place. It is, uh, if, if you want to put it into a physical sense, sometimes it becomes easier to understand when you actually have something physical to describe it as. <coughs> I think the best description that I have come across is that of a tuning fork. If you remember tuning forks, and if you twang one tuning fork and the frequency that that vibrates at, if there is another tuning fork in the room, that will also start to vibrate in line with that. And that is some sort of communication that exists between, between these two states. The mind is also has the same sort of power that it has got this paranormal power that it is able to communicate 
without verbal or other gestures being made at that time. So this is something that is definitely proven, proven to happen. And we have instances which are quoted in, in, in our literature which describe members of the community, for instance, who actually experience this themselves and they are convinced that this is a power that God has given to them. The person uh, has to be honest, straightforward, has, uh, has to be of that sort of a caliber. And I'll give you an example in, in that sense. I know that the fourth caliph of our community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, said about his own father, the second caliph, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, that he actually had this power to a very great degree. And Hazur related a very interesting incident that when he was a child, he said that it was the annual gathering in Rabwa taking place at the time. And Hazur says that I was only a small child and I would not always go on the stage, but on this occasion, I was present on the stage and I was sitting on a bench with some very revered members of the community on that bench. And uh, the, the fourth caliph, who was a child at that time, he said, a thought came to my mind that if I tilt this bench, all these revered people are going to fall <laughs> or flat on their faces on, uh, on the stage. You know, uh, while the gathering is taking place and the, fourth ca the second caliph is making his speech. And he said he t the second caliph, his father, turned around to him and said, Tahir, don't do that. So at that instance, he had realized and read his mind through that agency that this is what he's going to do. And if he does that, this would be the outcome. And therefore, he forbade him to do that. So it definitely takes place in that instance. Uh, and he talked about that, didn't he, in other instances as well. Jazakumullah, Dr. Zaid Saab. Kassid Saab, just on that, I mean, Dr. Saab's just given a very practical illustration of a relationship between a father and a child. And I had scribbled that down because, I mean, it's a classic. Parents just sometimes look at a child, you know. Uh, I've been both on the receiving end and on the sort of uh, retaining end of actually identifying that, where you can see that with a child, they perhaps have done something and you can read it on their faces and sometimes in the eyes. And we also find it in the world, other world as well. Sport is a great example where they say, and the amount of times you hear commentary that players, because of the dynamic they have, that they read each other's minds and it's, you know, it's almost playing off each other. I mean, it's something you find com commonplace and sometimes perhaps we don't even think about it and it's happening. Absolutely. I mean, it's not necessary that, you know, you, um, I mean, you have to be a part of that field to actually understand what the other person is mm -hmm. thinking. I mean, if you are, if you have studied that specific field, for instance, you know, you have psychologists and criminologists, they are in the field of recognizing body language, especially of criminals of a certain category, various categories. And when they've read that and when they, you know, when they signal and they pick up signals of something, they realize that, you know, this means this or this means this and they can from that very investigation they can take different paths of that investigation where they deduce various other you know conclusions so definitely i mean th this this it's thing. interesting what you say about body language because again there's immense amount that's put into it you know from sort of a professional standpoint but indeed you know her, you know how you sit how you stand what you do with your hands you know the way you go forward backwards i mean all these things are signs of uh, engagement aren't they yeah. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Basir Saab for your question. Um, we're going to stay in Germany for our next question, which comes from Madiha Khan Saiba. Assalamu alaikum and thank you uh, for your question. She's talking about um, a concept, uh, she's termed it a new concept known, known as the law of attraction. 
She says it originated in the 19th century and became popular amongst some. Um, I would like to know, is this considered correct under Islamic laws or is there something similar in Islam or is this contradictory to our beliefs? And I think she then goes on to explain in her question as well that, you know, it's about how people of the same mindset or if you're feeling a similar emotion, perhaps, that you attract like for like. Although one could counter it by saying that sometimes quite generally we say opposites attract, mm. that people mm. can be of a very different mindset to very different people, and yet they become very close friends. Dr. Zaitsab, is there an Islamic basis for this kind of law of attraction? Well, talking about the laws of attraction, the only law of attraction that I knew as a child growing up again was the law of m magnetism, isn't it? That as you have ju just said, that opposites attract. Uh, and uh, like things uh, repel each mm. other. However, there is something that to be said for the law of attraction, which is a principle and uh, out there, which actually has something again, perhaps, to do with your psyche and with the <coughs> powers powers of thinking and how you generally feel about things. That if you are thinking about positive things, then it is the energy that you are generating from those positive things that will generate the attraction of other positive things and you will actually uh, gain something in that respect and the reverse is also the case it is the case of the the glass being half full or the glass being half empty is how you perceive life and how you want to achieve something so an optimistic uh, view of life will actually be able you'll be able to gain more in optimism rather than in pessimism so this is there is something to be said said for that Islam actually does talk about these things and one of the things that God says is that for instance the company that you keep mm -hmm. if you we are told to keep company with the righteous now that is so that positive thinking positive thoughts positive way of life of those people who are righteous will also be something that will attract you to them and also will encourage a change in your own life that you too want to become like them so if you keep company with the righteous, as the Holy Quran, the Holy Prophet has encouraged us to do, that is the attraction that we are gaining from those people. And that is what we will gain from those people. And the converse is also the true, that if you keep uh, company with those people who are trying to mislead you, then you will be led towards those and that will be your destruction and, and disorder in society as far as that is concerned. So the law of attraction is something that we should think about in those instances, but we, as the law of attraction, we should not always tend to focus totally on that, that uh, if there is something that we are trying to achieve and we should always be optimistic about it, but there may be a drawback to that. So we have to take that on board, is that we must perceive the overall picture rather than leaving it just to be uh, energy that we are actually bounding off each other to try to attain something of that nature. Dr. Saab, just on that sort of final point, if I may, and one of the sort of, again, in general application, you find between human instinct, you know, if you find someone's, you know, forever talking in a very depressing and sort of downbeat way, after a while, you know, you think, gosh, you know, do I want to spend more time with this in individual because it's rubbing off on you. You're, you could be a very happy, positive, as Dr. Saab had just said, a positive and optimistic kind of person, yet negativity can have an effect where it sort of grinds you and wears you down. 
No, definitely. I mean, like uh, Dr. Sabin yourself have said that negativity does rub off and it has a very, you know, modern day psychology has proven that it has a very, very strong effect on a person if a person is, tends to think down that angle or, you know, he has a company of that sort. And I want to mention here that the Promise Messiah has also, you know, without giving the name of this um, law of attraction, he's mentioned this, that the behavior that we uh, present in this world, anything that we do in this world, has a very strong effect on our spirit. So, for instance, if we are in a state of, uh, you know, joy and bliss, then naturally our s the state of our soul, which is attached to our body, not physically, it's a spiritual, um, uh, you know, element, but that has a very strong effect on our spirit. And similarly, when we're in a state of humility and supplication towards God Almighty, our soul naturally, you know, in, it is in a state of prostration to God Almighty. And what's important is that we need to remember this, especially where the Holy Prophet having said, you know, when referring to Allah, that Allah the Almighty said, that I consider, I, um, I treat my servant according to what his perception is of me. So if you have a very negative perception of God Almighty, that he is the most, you know, um, he's the all-punishing and, you know, Jabbar, Kahar, these attributes, then naturally God Almighty will treat his servant according to that. But if you perceive God Almighty to be the all-forgiving and you have a very positive outlook on life, then God Almighty, inshallah, will, you know, treat you according to that. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, I'm sure uh, there'll be questions that come from this. I mean, it's one of those uh, questions which perhaps uh, sort of, again, gets people thinking about things. But for now, we'll leave it there. But Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Madia Khan Saibert for her question. We're going to travel to North America for our next one. It's from Farhanda Rafiq. Assalamu alaikum, Farhanda Saibert. Thank you for your question. She's talking about something which probably is quite topical, not just here in the United Kingdom, but across the world. It's about communities and how they come together. She's talked about intercommunal toleration, forgiveness and reconciliation within the Islamic tradition. Uh, I mean, if I can start with you on this, it's very topical. Everyone's talking about it. You can talk it within a faith context, but you can talk it in terms of a sort of perspective of loyalty to country. You can talk of um, loyalty and, um, sorry, rather than loyalty, but um, relationships across countries as well and regions, you know. And there's a great debate at the moment. And also the re reality is this is something which many countries at the moment are challenged by as well, how different communities with different identities actually can and do call particular countries their home. I mean, here in Britain, we've got very good examples of how communities have established themselves over decades. Not, I'm not for a moment suggesting there weren't a few challenges along the way, but we do generally have a very strong sort of relationship where people have very strong religious identities, cultural identities, but they're also able to sort of adhere and live, not just harmoniously, but contribute very positively to the country as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, um, it is something which leads to a very harmonious lifestyle and, uh, you know, um, the, the peace starts at one's home as a family unit and then it increases towards your neighborhood, the city, the That's township. That's sometimes forgotten though, isn't it? That, that people is. sort of look that, to that others. Yeah. Mm. You know, one of the biggest or the first steps you can do is look towards yourself and as an individual and your family. It might be because, you know, people take it from an opposite perspective. They look at it in its totality and they start from outwards and come inwards, whereas it should start inwards from an individual level and it should grow outwards to the international, you know, scale. And I think as Muslims, we should look at the um, 
you know, the, the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that is some, uh, you know, that in, is, is an example which is at times ridiculed. But if we look very carefully at his life, we find that this element of tolerance, forgiveness, you know, communal toleration, it's something that we find very emphatic in his lifestyle. From the very onset, you know, even before his prophethood, he was part of a pact called Hilful Fazul, in which um, youngsters uh, at that time would... Um, you know, their main purpose was to uphold the, the rights of those who were slightly oppressed and to bring justice to society. And then, you know, throughout his life, he tried, he did give, in fact, justice to those who were oppressed, you know, women who were oppressed, the slaves, um, various sorts of people who were oppressed. The Holy Prophet gave them their rights. And I think one important incident is the conquest of Mecca, which I like to refer to as the conquest of the hearts, because if you read the 10 or so years that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, spent in exile, you know, the, the, the details are, you know, they're very grief. And, um, you know, the Holy Prophet wasalam, struggled immensely during those few years that he spent in exile. Having been physically tormented and having his loved ones killed before him, you know, these were some of those things. And when the Holy Prophet wasalam, was given the opportunity to enter his hometown once again, he didn't bring any sort of, you know, revenge in his um, in, in his um, capacity. He, not only himself, but he managed to nurture a community who was forgiving and said that there is no recompense upon you, no, that there is no sort of um, revenge upon you which I shall bring. Mm -hmm. And everyone, he said that everyone who is here in such and such place, they are safe and no revenge will, you know, take place uh, on them. And then if we fast forward 1400 years now, we see the promised Messiah Islam's example. And to, till his last breath, you know, even if we see a few hours before his demise, he wrote a booklet called Pergham Esulu, The Message of Peace. And in that, I think that's a book which really does need to be studied. Because that book is such that he's given a very concise guideline of how two nations, and the two nations at that time were the Hindus and Muslims who weren't you found it very difficult to, co to, to coexist. But the Promised Messiah has given a very broad guideline of how two communities who do apparently seem to conflict, how they can, through various compromises, coexist as, you know, in, in a part of a communal, uh, um, uh, sorry, um, a, t a tolerating sort of environment and forgiving environment. Jazakumullah, I mean, that's very helpful. I mean, indeed, the noble example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is something which needs to be amplified a lot more by all Muslim communities and beyond in how he would react. And in that context, perhaps, Dr. Zaid Saab, in the, I can put it in the, the here and now as well, mm -hmm. because we've had this incredible sort of, um, you know, wherever you've been in the world with the tragic events that happened in uh, France, an attack on journalists who were the child. Charlie Hebdo magazine, um, irrespective of where you stood in terms of the magazine and what you thought and what it stands for, how it publishes cartoons, some find extremely offensive, others stand up, and we've had this debate raging on freedom of speech. First of all, the act which was committed against these journalists was universally and unequivocally condemned by all communities, all faiths, and uh, the Muslim community stood at one with the Jewish community who were attacked subsequently in a uh, kosher uh, grocery shop. I think that was a, very, a great strength of this cohesion in, in life, but at the same time respecting the fact that there were reasons um, um, subsequently when the magazine 
chose to publish uh, a cartoon depicting the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that sentiments were hurt. Um, there were obvious grievances to the Muslim community in particular. Yet I think we must commend the reaction which then followed, which was, yes, saying, of course, we're outraged or hurt by, but Islam also teaches, it's coming back to the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to act in a particular way. Perhaps you could sort of expand upon that a bit more. Yeah, it's such a topical subject, a really important subject mm -hmm. in, the, in the history of man and uh, one that's taking place in our own lifetime. And sometimes we have to ponder and think as to what is the way forward. We see this sort of activity, as you have said, uh, day in, day out, literally, and across the globe, Paris, Sydney, where Canada, wherever you, you take it, we have seen these instances take place. For Muslims, they, they, they really have to take on board as to what is their responsibility in, in, in all of this. Obviously, condemnation is something that most Muslims have come out with as to the <coughs> barbaric acts that were carried out and continue to be carried out in other parts of, of the world. And Qasid Sab has given a, a, a well-presented uh, background to what the Holy Prophet Sallallahu teachings were, what the Promised Messiah in this day and age has, has laid down for us and tolerance and forgiveness are important aspects as is uh, freedom, freedom for expression but decency in freedom of expression so that the uh, sentiments of people are not injured as well. All of that was taken on board by the Holy Prophet in his own lifetime. And Muslims, I think you have alluded to the fact there, what would be the reaction of the Prophet if he was present in these circumstances Indeed, today. today? That is for the, not only for the world to see, but for the Muslims to see and to fathom out is what would we, because he was sent as a mercy, not just for Muslims. He was sent as a mercy, not just for Arabia, but he was sent as a mercy for the whole of the universe. And it was to, uh, you know, uh, weep out these problems that exist and how to be merciful in those instances. So that is the important thing for Muslims to realize is yes, blasphemy is something that is punishable by God and not man to take on board. And this is what the prophet in his own lifetime, he was ridiculed, he was, he was spat at, he had garbage thrown on him, they tried to murder him, but he did not take action like the Muslims, some, some Muslim, you call so-called Muslims take in the world today. So th what was his reaction? His reaction was of forbearance, of tolerance, or forgiveness, as Qasid has said when he re-entered Mecca, La tasariba alaykum al -yum. You know, that is what the world has to take on board today, that yes, there is this tolerance, but at the same time, the sentiments of people are very sanctuary. So they have to be, you know, you, you have to take on board that you do not go around injuring the feelings of people. And therefore, you know, freedom of expression on the one hand, but it has to be with responsibility that you do not injure the sentiments of people. It is like having any loved one. The, the Pope himself has made uh, a very valid point on this, that if someone abuses his mother, then he should expect punishment for that. Now that is one element of it, but that is also the background to it that we do, we do not expect others to defame or derail those people who, do, who we dearly love. And there can be no other person who Muslims love more dearly than the Holy Prophet So we have to stand together with people of all religions, people of all faiths. This is the blueprint that Islam in fact has given this is the blueprint that the Holy Prophet brought 
The mankind is one, one, one people. They have been split into tribes for recognition, but for no other reason. We are all one body, one person, one mankind, and this is the way forward that we have to tolerate each other, we have to forgive each other, we have to work together to make strong community links so that there is peace in every society that there is. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and just to finally on what you've just said, Dr. Zaisab, I mean, not adding to it, but just qualifying it in light of what was said earlier as well. And that was exactly the example of the noble prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And I think that that's where the challenge surely lies, isn't it? Yes. That too often you hear the excuse, what more can we do? Um, you know, if we come out, yes, acts of condemnation, and when you're talking about the Muslim community. And it's about sort of putting forward, not just working practical example, communities working together, but within your own faith, actually exemplifying the very nature, the character of the Holy Prophet, Absolutely. peace be upon him, for example, and what the teaching is. As you rightly said, how would he have reacted had he been mm. here today? Mm. And he would have done so, as we all know, with great compassion and mercy, so not to, in terms of uh, some of the acts that you see people who, I mean, I think it's right to say, who hijack a noble faith and present it in a way which unfortunately is an Islam that no devout or uh, uh, Muslim of any denomination will certainly recognize. Gentlemen, uh, Muslims have to be educated about what was the real character of the Holy Prophet because there's a lot of misconception. So where does that responsibility lie? It, well, that lies with the faith itself. That lies with, with the people in the community. As Qasid has said, that has to start from the home. Mm -hmm. The parents have to be educated about what was the true nature of the Holy Prophet This is for Muslims. And then the community, then the mosques have to take this on board and teach their people that this is the character, the sublime <coughs> character of the Holy Prophet There is a plethora of you know books that have been written about the life of the Holy Prophet. The community has great books on this. And there was uh, the books of Hisham, the great uh, Arab who wrote about the Sirat, about the uh, Prophet And at the same time, then we have to educate non-Muslims as to what is the real character because non-Muslims even today unfortunately have this uh, you know um, uh, picture of the Holy Prophet which I got when I was an eight-year-old sitting in, in class in school of, the, of a man with the Quran in the one hand and a sword in the other. You know as an eight-year-old child that was the image that was given to me and I was none the wiser at that time and it was only after I came home and I questioned it and I was taught and going through the community and being, being taught in the community as to what was the true character of the Holy Prophet, I found that it couldn't have been further away from the picture that had be, been painted to me as an eight-year-old and as the only Muslim in the school at that time, you know. The teacher was telling us this, we were told to respect and believe our teachers, and that is what I took on board. Mm -hmm. So the world has then got now got to recognize as to what is the true picture of, of the Holy Prophet and by the grace of God, the community led by Hazrat Khalifatul Masih, may Allah strengthen his hand, is now educating people as to what is the true uh, character and the teachings of Islam in general. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, again, a subject which is vast, um, and I'm sure there are many angles yet to cover, but for now, thank you as ever for your very detailed responses, and my thanks to Farhanda Rafiq Saiba for your question. Moving on, if I may, we go to our next question, which comes from Riyaz Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Riyaz Sahib. You've forgotten to tell us where you're from, but um, hopefully when we start talking about your question, you'll know who you are. Um, again, also thank you for your kind comments about Faith Matters. Um, 
his questions about Islamic ethics, business ethics in particular, and adverts and sort of adver advertising which is associated with that. And he said that there are problems that can be seen in many Muslim countries about diversion from cultural or established cultural and religious values. And it's sometimes, as he puts it, difficult to find a solution to the ethical dilemma on these ad advertisements which are put forward. And his question is, how does Islam say that one can balance these sort of, what he could probably perceive as challenges or different challenges on either side? And what is the ultimate purpose for Islamic business? Is it there to serve the community? Is it there to earn a profit? And uh, can the two be tallied? If I could add to his question, Atsitab, if I start with you on that. I mean, in a way, we're seeing society not just within Islam, but go down that exact route. I, I remember when I was serving in the private sector, every company had corporate social responsibility, had looking at how it would start procuring things in terms of ethical stuff. So, you know, if you got out for your morning coffee, um, was it made, you know, was it fair trade coffee? Was it from the right place? So on and so forth. I think the world generally is becoming, if it, this, and we'll look at it in Islamic light as well, but the world generally is certainly waking up to this as well. I mean, definitely, you know, the world is realizing there are some certain, you know, certain ethical problems. I mean, I was watching a documentary recently about, um, you know, a certain company, and they, it, it, it all, the, the, the tin or the iron that they acquire, it all came back from a certain place where child labor was, um, you know, a very pre a pre a predominant. And uh, that is something which is frowned upon, obviously. You don't want children to be working from a very young mm. age. You want them to be yeah. educated and for them to have opportunities for uh, the future. But definitely, I think this is a problem which gradually, nowadays especially, is becoming, um, it, it is decreasing day by day and it is looked upon. But in certain places, there are such problems. In certain parts of the world, there are problems where things aren't del dealt with with complete honesty. You know, if you're, if you look at a very, you know, um, um, an individual level, you, if you want to sell a second-hand item, third-hand item, for instance, and you're not being entirely honest with the proper, uh, uh, um, you know, the buyer, the, the exactly the, the the product that you're yeah. selling. If you're not honest about that, then that's not coming down to the basic principle of Islam, mm -hmm. which is taqwa. And taqwa teaches that you should be entirely honest with what you're selling. So, for instance, I mean, if you claim and you're running a business of a restaurant and you say that this is the best restaurant in London, for instance, that's where we are. You know, if we say that this is the best restaurant in London many and claim that. many <laughs> claim that exactly. And that that lacks, yeah. the, you know, that that I leads mean, we to could go out and test them. And uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that could be an interesting program. But go on. Sorry. That leads to the yeah. lack of credibility. You know, if I was to go to a restaurant and they're saying that this is the best in London, I would want some sort of a source. And if they if it's a self-branded name, then obviously you know, you're lacking credibility and naturally you're not being entirely honest in your claim. But if mm -hmm. you're giving the reference of a newspaper, of a magazine, or someone who has said that, you know, the local council, if that be, then you're being honest and you're giving some sort of you know, an encouragement to your customers to come to... So uh, it's a more objective opinion in that sense because a third party is endorsing you. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have, to be, you have to be entirely honest. But in yeah, your advertising approach. is based on this notion of you have to promote. I mean, we don't get it so much here in the UK, but uh, when you travel, say, to uh, America and to the US, I mean, I was astonished when I first went there at how negative companies could be about their competitors. So come to us because 
X actually is really poor in this, X, which perhaps in advertising rules in the UK you couldn't do, but you could there. Uh, you can do it now, actually. I mean, I've seen on television now that, that you know, advertisements, they do take the names of other hypermarket companies. Yeah. In, and terms of in terms of price competition. In terms of price. And I think that is a better approach instead of saying, instead of just self-branding yeah. that, you know, our company is much better in you know, whatever, and you're, you're just promoting yourself. But if there is a level of competition, healthy competition is good, but dishonesty is not, you know, encouraged, especially from an Islamic perspective. Everything should be dealt with through taqwa. And if you're, you know, another example I'll give is that if a certain product has an expiration date, and you're not being entirely honest with the terms and conditions, and you're selling that product, then that is also not um, being entirely honest. You know, like you said, is it, is the purpose to gain profit or is the purpose to um, offer custom to your customers? And the, the, the bottom line is that you have two, two responsibilities. That is to also earn a profit, which is encouraged in Islam, but then you naturally have a responsibility to the people, you know, the, 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 the custom that you provide. Jazakumullah, that's have some very valid points there. I mean, responsibility in business about ensuring that you have the respect um, you talked about the notion of taqwa, the respect of God or knowing God is watching you mm. at all times should actually, you know, at least soften some of your approaches. I think that's an important religious perspective to bring in as well. And you touched about the whole thing on ethics. Dr. Zaid Saab, just on that, here's a practical example, which certainly I experienced. I went to Bangladesh a couple of years ago and we went into the uh, sort of old town of Dhaka and we saw some young children who were um, the main source of income for their families who were actually working in quite what I would call you know unsatisfactory mm. conditions but nevertheless they were better than most there was some mild lighting they were I think involved in the production of jewelry uh, sort of artificial jewelry and yet the company and they were working quite sort of hours we have this debate about working hours here quite horrendously long hours but within that the agreement that had been reached with some of the charities the third sector the NGOs that there was a school within that district where the children were then allowed to go for a few hours of the day as part of this program for recreation and more importantly education as well and it was a different one to balance that you saw what mm. in our context from a British context if you like would be appalling conditions it was children working but as someone explained to me when we saw this and were initially quite taken back that actually what we're trying to do is empower them because we are within this context not just saying okay there's a job to do and they're earning something we're actually seeking to educate them and again there was that balance of doing something for profit but at the same time perhaps being slightly more aware than they'd been historically or previously about ethics and their need to actually move society forward. Yeah, that's a difficult one because, you know, employers obviously have got great responsibilities and um, different parts of the world have different yardsticks as to how they can judge conditions and working conditions and age conditions for, for whatever. But the employers have got responsibility and, of course, a child labour per se is something that can be very damaging to the society as such. But at the same time, in, in that particular society, if you see those children who perhaps are not in employment under those circumstances, what is their condition is probably much worse as well. They do not go to school, they have far worse conditions of living. They are probably not fed because they are not earning at that time. Whereas we, on the other hand, as you have said, that there are others who actually have a job, this employer, is looking after their welfare in the best means. They have set up schooling for them and therefore 
in future they, there is a sort of a pathway for them to progress and not be stuck in that state. So that is an important issue in, in that instance. However, where the West has got a re greater responsibility is to try to balance things on a better, better model that if the profits are going to be generated and consumed by those people in the, in the developed countries and they do not look after the welfare or as much as they should of those people in those situations, then that is an ethical issue and an ethical dilemma that should be faced and has to be faced by consumers in the developed countries, whether they support those products or not. So they too have a responsibility in, in that respect. But everything has to be taken on balance because, as I say, there is a different way of measuring a different yardstick, perhaps, mm -hmm. in those parts of the world where they think, well, this is a better, sol better situation for us as far as that is concerned. And the Holy Prophet وسلم, you know, he, he made uh, a small, he said, G give the laborer his dues before his sweat dries. Now, that is obviously got to be understood on a wider scale is that he is saying that the welfare of the people who are in your employment should always be looked after to a very great degree. And the Prophet also in, in aspects of commercial enterprise has given uh, many guidelines which actually try to re, uh, the balance is, is shifted back to the employees from the employers and you think that how can employers exist when these uh, rights have been given to employees. But that is human nature. That is the mercy that one must have. The Holy Quran talks of that. He says, woe to those people who give in short measure, talking about mm. commercial enterprise, you know. And commercial enterprise, we, we, let's not forget that at the time of the Holy Prophet وسلم, there were great merchants around. And the Hazrat Khadija, عنها, we know that was a great wealthy lady who was in enterprise. But after the Holy Prophet وسلم, the directives that he gave as far as how to uh, sell your commodities, for instance, he said you should not give short measure. When you're, when you're weighing up something, you should you know, balance it more towards the seller than to yourself. So these are, these are aspects to the buyer, to the, to the, to the buyer yeah. so that it's in, it's in his favor. Mm -hmm. He was passing a market, uh, and this comes to advertisement actually, he was passing a market and there was some grain that a person was selling. He put his hand into that and his fingers came out wet. And he said to the uh, seller, why is that wet? And he said that the rain had made the wet. And he said, why had you not put it on the top, to be honest, that this was grain was wet? So the honesty <coughs> in that respect is very important. So you must, should not mislead the people that you are trading with. So honesty is something that is paramount. And that is where blessings come into enterprise. So Islam does talk about this thing in great detail about but it talks about a balance. And our, as our questioner has asked, what is the balance? Unfortunately, in the world today, I, uh, I came across this statistic, and I quite, can't quite remember whether it's 10% or 1% of the world's population has as much wealth as the rest of the 90% or 99%. Uh, it's something of that nature. And that is difficult, you know, to, to digest, that there is a very small percentage of people in the world who actually hold the vast, uh, you know, resources which are, which are totally mm -hmm. out of balance and Islam does not uh, allow that, and that is where the balance has to be addressed so that there is greater peace and harmony in society from an economic point of view in that respect. 
Gentlemen, Jazakum Labat, again, very pertinent question. I mean, social welfare, it's, a, it's one of those. And perhaps, you know, on a, on a positive note, I, when you're talking of advertising, you see very strong advertising standards to prevent mm. misleading, to prevent people going down an avenue. And I think rights and protections afforded to the consumer. And I think it's also valid very much to say that it's incredibly and much more evident in when we make these comparisons in the developed part of parts of the world in the Western economies who are much more stringent in their application. And uh, the final comment on that also perhaps, if I can touch, is on the issue of philanthropy as well. Mm. I mean, immediately as you were speaking, mm. I scribbled down Bill and Melinda mm. Gates. Mm. I mean, here you've got mm. someone mm. who's got incredible wealth, mm. but someone at some time, somewhere, and I, mm. I can speak from our own experience mm. as well within uh, the DFID department the, of international development, Bill and Melinda Gates are playing an incredible mm. role in terms of the redistribution of what they feel is they have enough money, mm. is how can they make their money work mm. better mm. for the more challenging parts of the world. And they're setting up some phenomenal mm. uh, uh, sort of trusts and charities in terms of education, empowerment of children, women, so on and so forth. And I think, you know, all credit to them for doing yep. just that because it's very easy to say, well, I'm comfortable, but they've actually said no. And they're going out actually, people like them positively say what more can we do that is indeed reassuring and whenever what comes across this type of uh, news one can pray for these people you know that they are doing the job that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually started of welfare of of society and uh, the all the characteristics that were promoted by the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam have been taken on board on board by these very wealthy people um, Bill Gates is an example that you, you have certainly cited and he is trying to eradicate certain diseases in parts of Africa and the uh, efforts and the resources that they have put into uh, these places is highly commendable and uh, we just pray and wish that there are more people out there who will also come forward you know there are many who do carry this uh, on uh, and uh, we hope that mankind realizes that this is the way forward that poverty has to be eradicated. This is one of the things, how to eradicate poverty and hunger uh, from, from the world. And if this is on the uh, forefront of the agenda of the great nations of the world as well, then perhaps we will see in our own lifetime a readdressing of the balance and greater harmony as far as um, peace in society is concerned. And of course the charity sector, which again, do a phenomenal mm. loud, as well as religious communities indeed. Uh, the Amdia community amongst others are, you know, this thing about social welfare is very much in evidence on religious communities across the board. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Riaz Ahmedzai for his question. The next one comes from Wahid Saab from the UK. Ghazi um, Saab, he's asking a question about a story he read um, in the International New York Times that due to sensitivities by Muslims, um, pig faces were censored in an article and he's then asked that why is this considered so you know the whole issue of depicting pigs and its association uh, of pigs why is it considered so hateful by Muslims some people say it's even bad to even just take its name well if that's the case I, I apologize if I've offended someone just by talking about it my question but um, I don't think it's to that extent you may correct me if I'm not right in saying it but Clearly, and perhaps you can enlighten viewers as well, but there's a sort of an association, obviously, Muslims of whatever denomination do not eat pork and 
anything associated with any kind of pig meat. And there's a general sense of not just dislike, but uh, you know, a real distance between anything associated with that particular animal and Islam. So you won't have Muslim farmers, pig farmers, for example. So perhaps you can sort of enlighten our viewers as to what that is and what Wahid Saab's asking. To what extent, I mean, should we go? I mean, is it really that hurtful to a Muslim to mm. blacken out faces of pigs in newspapers? I mean, it's unfortunate in certain you know, uh, scenarios, we do go from one extreme mm. to the complete other. And uh, the same is of the case when we say that you can't take the name of a pig. Whereas if we look in the Quran, if we look in the Ahadith, the name of the pig has been included. And when you're reciting you know, the verses of the Quran in which the pig has been mentioned, we don't you know, censor those verses. When Allah, when Allah the Almighty has mentioned that name, when the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu have mentioned those names, then it's not for us to say that those names should not be taken. Now, as far as pigs and swine is concerned, um, you know, it, it's fundamental that the consumption of pigs is not permitted. So whereas the drawings or such things, uh, you know, come into the question, then they are permitted. You know, that's not something where we can actually say that that is being consumed. However, obviously, if the pigs are, or, or if images of uh, pigs are such that they promote or advertise the consumption of pigs, especially in an uh, Islamic environment, then that is obviously, that should be looked into as to how much that should be avoided uh, by those authorities, by those people who are running, running that uh, magazine. I mean, I did look at the, um, I did manage to have a look at the magazine and I saw the picture and the way it was you know, covered, it was that the face was covered as if to hide their identity or something. But if that is the case, then you, that, that's more of a you know, ridiculing manner to, to, to hide images of pigs. If you want to do that, then you know, remove the image altogether. It doesn't necessarily have to be there. If it's a special edition for a certain Muslim country, that picture doesn't have to be there. So there are more you know, tactful ways of handling such um, scenarios. Now one question which, um, uh, I mean, the, the question has posed is that it's a creation of Allah. Mm. So, you know, Surely, so it? much, yeah. yeah, so much detest and so much hate should not be shown to a creation of Allah. Now that is touching a slightly philosophical debate that where God, why has God Almighty, you know, created such prohibited things? And the short answer to that is that God Almighty has created good, and He has um, created those things which have the potential to invite, you know, ill or vices in the world. For instance, I mean, you know, in the world we have the. Um, positive and um, negative energies and that is something from you know from a scientist from a science perspective we can say that that is present and in every perspective God Almighty has created a positive energy and a negative energy and it's for us to decide which um, path to take. I mean uh, lots of food for thought there in terms of you know where we go with this I mean that final point about God's creation God has created this. Also, I mean, Dr. Zaitsar, but for, with your profession on as well, I mean, there's benefits to be had. There's been great, you know, when we look at scientific discoveries, perhaps, I, I'm sure I read an article not so long ago on saying how can perhaps the pig's heart be used mm. in a context of, um, yep. you know, further discovery and development <coughs> on the human heart and so on and so forth. And there is a lot contributing so and secondly perhaps you could also take that on board you know leather goods for example some goods are created from uh, pig skin which are then used and maybe providing clothing to people in in the world to provide warmth and that's part and parcel of their survival so there's a whole raft of different usage and this I you know what God just said mm. you know 
just on the additions point, I mean, there's an easy solution to that. You do a different edition. I mean, newspapers print about three or four at times different editions to suit the different times of day. So having a different edition which is tailored to a Muslim country, I think, is an easy thing to do for the publisher. But the other elements, though, perhaps, if you would touch on those. Yeah, you know, uh, Allah has created everything with a purpose. Mm -hmm. So this is part of Allah's creation, as Wahid Sab has pointed out. And there are scientific benefits of the pig which are well known and which are well used. Uh, it, one thing that comes to my mind initially is insulin. Now for some reason the insulin that you derive from the pig is the closest and the best that the human body can use for the control of diabetes and their sugar levels. Synthetic insulins are now now manufactured but it but that actually may not be as efficient mm -hmm. and tolerant to the patient as that of the pig. So there's one benefit out there already in that respect and has been there for many, many years. The other thing that, yes, we have come across is that the heart of the pig is something that can be used in transplantation to the human body and the rejection is again not a problem. If it's not the whole heart, then the heart valves in themselves that can be taken from the pig can be used in a human heart and they work perfectly well. So this shows us that the creation of Allah has got its, its purposes. As far as the other parts of the pig, the skin, the, uh, it, sometimes in the olden days, there's the needles of the, on the skin, you know, the, the hairs of the pig are very stiff hairs and they were actually used for suturing of surgical wounds as, as well. So that there is another, another element, another benefit and benefit of that. Unfortunately, Muslims, you know, tend to be very black and white in their approach. They do not study the teachings of the Holy Quran as expounded then by the Holy Prophet and try to find out what the real message is. As Qasid Sab has said, the actual name of the pig appears in the Holy Quran. Of course we recite it, of course we say it without any hesitation, you know. And it's the consumption that was forbidden by Allah in the Holy Quran but with a very strong proviso. And this is important for Muslims to, you know, to take on board. Allah says that if you are in a state that to save your life, that you only have uh, this flesh of swine to consume, you're permitted even to consume that. Now, you know, that is a very tolerant, that is the picture that Allah the Almighty is painting. And here we are of Muslims saying that we will not see a picture of the pig in this. It's a very sad scenario, you know. Muslims really, really have to study what is the beautiful teachings of Islam. The consumption is forbidden, but even allowed in the in exceptional circumstances. You know, we've gone that far. So, unfortunately, in certain parts of the world, we have come across these issues, but Muslims really must go back to the true teachings of Islam, and that was the purpose of the coming of the Messiah in the latter days, that he would actually tell people that this is true Islam. Mm -hmm. This is what the Prophet bore. This is the Quran which has not changed. Don't interpret it erroneously. Interpret it as the Prophet would have done. Mm -hmm. And this is by the grace of Allah what the community continues to do throughout the world. And we hope that, that Muslims will actually learn from this <coughs> and be able to progress forward. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah. Um, very extensively answered as ever, and my thanks also to Wahid Sab. I was reminded not just 
on the Islamic thing, but all religions. A, a hymn I used to remember well from schooling days, you know, all things bright and beautiful, mm. all creatures great and small, the Lord God oh, made yeah. them all. So I think there's a <laughs> sense that's sometimes forgotten in um, how uh, every one, everything, every creature, every being has a purpose in life. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Wahid Saab. In the sort of last few minutes of the program, we'll take our next question, which is on uh, racism. And Dr. Asan Moher from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, USA. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much, Dr. Asan, for your question. He says that to combat injustices that go along with racism in society, is peaceful protest, Dr. Zaid Saab, permitted in Islam? Yes, we can educate people. We can, uh, uh, you know, talk to them about what the wrongs are that have been committed. As far as racism is, uh, is, is uh, concerned, Islamic teachings on racism are very clear, both from the Holy Quran, who says mankind is one. There is no difference. You have the same blood running in your veins. The color of your skin or your cultures, they may all be different, but you are the same people. The Holy Prophet ﷺ himself, in his farewell address, he, he actually dealt with this subject of racism of different societies. He said no Arab is superior to a non-Arab, <laughs> and no non-Arab is superior to an Arab. No, no white is superior to a black, and no black is superior to a white. And he said, I have given you this message today. You make sure that who are not present here today will get this message. So you know, such an important subject was dealt with by the Holy Prophet So those people who are subjected to racism, yes, they have to sort of educate people, they have to make a protest in the, not in the manner of going out in the streets and burning and looting, as people tend to do, but of educating, of trying to go to the authorities and make sure that this is rooted out. Unfortunately, in some parts of the world, this continues to be a problem, uh, racism, Apartheid in South Africa may, may have come to an end as far as the laws are concerned, but unfortunately, uh, you know, un un undercurrents, I'm not saying in South Africa, I'm saying in many parts of the world, this still continues to be a problem. And in each and every society that we live in, we have to obviously root this out with peaceful protest in that respect. Mazakallah, <laughs> Dr. just on that, I mean, Islam very, I mean, Dr. Asan asks, how does Islam defy racism? And I think the best answer to that is it abhors racism, any kind of racist, you know, way in bigotry is not part of any faith and Islam included. But also this thing about protest, sometimes it is seen in the sense of, you know, out with placards or causing, and quite often some of the protests which are deemed to be driven by race are sometimes based on other factors of social deprivation of, you know, if someone has nothing, then the likelihood is they feel more desperate and look to different avenues to express themselves. But even then, Islam's teaching is one of reflection, is one of, as Dr. Saab said, one of education. And that a lot of people find quite challenged because if you find yourself in a desperately sort of a situation whereby you are being victimized, you are being you know, targeted in this case, specifically in the question, simply because of your race. We saw it with the, I mean, we're coming up to the 70th anniversary of Auschwitz, whereby a particular religion, which was Judaism, I mean, it was horrendous. I was seeing a documentary only last week on the Holocaust. I went to Auschwitz. I saw how a particular, you know, way a particular religion was simply because of their beliefs were you know, it was, uh, it was not just a inhumane, would be understating. It was a genocide of the worst kind. So history, and Dr. Saab talked about South Africa. We saw 
apartheid in its worst kind. Yet it still, it may not be said by name. It still happens across the world. Definitely. I mean, you know, history does bear testimony that racism has had a very harsh consequence on the result of, you know, lives of many nations, not just individual people, but nations have been wiped out just because of mere racism. Now, what one needs to bear in mind is that <clears throat> there needs to be a very pragmatic approach to this. I mean, naturally, you know, there are unfortunately those people who do judge according to skin color or race or caste or whatever, mm -hmm. wherever the locality, the location of that person is, wherever he belongs to. People do judge according to that, and that is, you know, an ongoing effort. People do, we are trying to, you know, completely abolish that from the world. But you know, since time immemorial, that has that that attempt has been going on and it's an ongoing process but what is important is that the reaction to this is not harsh is not violent naturally there are people who are suppressed um, oppressed and the muslims are oppressed for their beliefs you know it's not just maybe racism but for their beliefs it's they are oppressed as well. as well it's religious bigotry absolutely so the response has to be equally as you know loud but if you do that in a very harsh way it has to be, you know, in a way which leads to a pragmatic approach. Now, in the Holy Quran, the Holy, uh, you know, Allah the Exalted states very clearly in Surah Al-Hujurat, uh, chapter 49, verse 14, that, O, man, o mankind, we have created you from a male and female, and we have made you into clans and tribes that you may recognize one another. So the Holy Quran has, not, you know, very bluntly said that there are clans and tribes in the world, and they will, because the Holy Quran is till the day of judgment, this will remain. There will be clans and tribes. Yet, Allah the Almighty immediately says after this, inna akramakum atqakum, that surely the most respectable among you are those who are the muttaqi, the most righteous. So those who are the most God-fearing, those who are, those who fear God and supplicate towards God and have a very strong bond with God, they are the ones who are the most uh, respectable. And in terms of religion, this is what Islam teaches, that you must be most God-fearing in your approach. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.